Why don't we pray together as we've heard God's word tonight? Our Lord God, as we have heard your word through this teacher in Ecclesiastes, we ask that you'd help us to think through what uh, you would have say to us here. To think through how we make sense of the world we live in. We ask, Lord, tonight that you would help my words to be your words. And that this passage, we, we would see the phenomenal significance of Jesus and how life makes sense with him at the center through it. We pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to have question time at the end of this talk. It's something we've been trying to do uh, more and more at Uni Church. So we'd love if you've got questions for you to text the number up on the screen. Um, and we'll, we'll come together at the end, hopefully, if there's time, uh, and be able to answer some of those questions as we go through. Or if I don't have an answer, I'll say I don't know. But as I've thought through life and death and this book, it kind of has reminded me a little bit of watching the news. Uh, You ever watch the news? Uh, It seems to me that uh, when we watch the news, it can be a little bit of a depressing kind of time. A few years ago, I decided to stop watching the news. I made this conscious decision that I'm I'm not going to watch the news anymore. Partially, it was because I was sick of the infotainment that would come to me. You know, when facts get in the way of a good story, so we'll change them a little bit and just say what is kind of what will sell. But I think deep down, the reason why I kind of didn't want to watch the news as much is, well, I just found it depressing. Uh, I don't know if you're in a similar case where you watch the news and it just seems like it's a big Congo line of negative facts. Just one after another after another, they just keep slapping you in the face as you watch the news. Number one, there's been poverty somewhere. There's, there's a war somewhere else. And then you're slapped with death and then murder and then corruption. And it's like, it just keeps coming at you. And then just because they want to keep us happy, they go, oh, do you know what? And this is a true story. Uh, do you know what? In August at Auckland Zoo, um, the giraffe had a baby. Look, here's a picture of it. And everyone goes, oh, and we feel good about life again. Did you know they've done studies? I think it's 17 to 1. They'll put 17 negative stories to one positive story, and it kind of makes us not feel too bad about the world around us. Have you ever watched the news and you're like, why is that? I looked at the newspaper um, yesterday, and there's stories about the All Blacks. That's important news. There's war, right? Okay, I understand that. Um, And then there's stories about all sorts of stuff going on overseas and plane crashes. And then one of the highlighted stories there was, you know what, guys? There's a seal on Tamaki Drive. That is not newsworthy. Like, what is that? Why is the seal? You could go and see it. And then they gave all these things, precautions when approaching seals. Don't get too close. They can have skin viruses. Um, Don't get near their saliva because it carries disease. And they can get aggressive and protective. And you're like, oh, now I know about seals. You say, why? Because I'm avoiding the truth. Problem is the truth can be quite depressing. But the truth is the truth, isn't it? There's a point in which when... We kind of need to grow up. (laughs) We kind of need to stop avoiding the news and and look at the world as it is and accept the facts that this is reality. If we live in a dream world where this stuff doesn't go on, where evil and murder and disaster don't happen, really we're just living in a world like ostriches with our heads in the sand going, it's all right, it's all butterflies and baby seals and baby giraffes and everything's nice and pretty. it's It's just not all there is, is it? I'm afraid that this part of the Bible is a little bit like watching the news, except there aren't many happy giraffes. (laughs) 
This part of the Bible comes from the point of view of, of, of the, the wisest, richest, kind of most inf- one of the most influential people this world has ever seen. And it's his look at the world. Ecclesiastes is his kind of view of what life is like if we just see everything that's here. If we take the idea of religion or God out of the question and just live in the world, what is it like? What do we see amongst us? And what we see is that it's a world that is marred by evil. The problem of evil, like on the news, is, is everywhere. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. It's on, on the screen. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. Now, that was written 3,000 years ago. But it could be talking about today, couldn't it? It could be describing the world that you and I live in. It just shows you the relevance of this book we call the Bible, this collection of books of points of view from, from God. The world around us hasn't changed that much. Sure, the ways we commit evil might have changed. The ways that things that, that go wrong might have changed. How quickly we can spread the news of what's going on might have changed. But doesn't that just describe what we look at in the papers and on the news? As this teacher looks at the world around him, as he explores the world, he sees a world that is marred by evil. The problem of evil is kind of everywhere. Have a listen to chapter 5, verse 8, a bit further forward. He says, If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The the profit from the land is um, taken by all. The king is served by the field. What do we see? Corruption. And he says, don't be surprised. Yet we're still surprised when it comes on the news that someone has done something that was illegal. There's been corruption in, in some, some person's bribes, someone else. We're like, how could they do that? 3,000 years, friends. This is the world we live in. D- do you really think we're getting better? I think not. If this is all there is, if the problem of evil is so pervasive in the world around us, I want to put it to you tonight. In fact, this this writer wants to put it to you. And it's not the happiest thing to say. But if this is all there is, you're better off dead. You're better off dead. Have a look. 4 verse 2. So I admired the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed. Who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. It's not the happiest of chaps, the writer of, Saul, of um, Ecclesiastes, is he? It's kind of a, it's a hard line that he's holding here, but my hunch is you've actually thought those thoughts at times. My hunch is that in your life, in our, in our limited existence, we've come across moments where we're like, man, I wish I'd just never been born. Whether it's standing outside the principal's office. I know that was a feeling I'd had. Uh, when, when, when the teacher asked me, do you want the cane or do you want to be suspended? I'm like, what do you, what do you choose? I said, neither. And he said, right, suspended. 
You know, there are times like, man, I don't want to go home to my parents and confess this truth. I don't want to be here. Or, or I look at horrible things that, that happen in the world, like the time that we lost a child before we had Nathaniel. And you're like, this is awful. Why is this the case? There might be a, a myriad of problems for you, or maybe just a few. But I'm sure for all of us, there's been moments where we've asked, is life worth it? The problem of evil is everywhere. And what the teacher does now for the next kind of chapter 4, chapter 5 and chapter 6 is trace the things in life that we see as important. Kind of look at them again. And what we're going to see is that the problem of evil corrupts every single one of them and rips them of their meaning and purpose. So he kind of starts this catalogue of the things that are important in life. 4 verse 6 the problem with work. Sorry, 4 verse 4. And I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to a man's jealousy of his friend. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Looking forward to getting a job? <laughs> this teacher is like, look, work at its heart sometimes, work under the sun and when we labor and the things that we do really are driven so much by evil, by jealousy, by selfish and self-serving motives of people. What are they? This progression of thoughts. What I have is not enough. I want then what you have. And then more than that, I don't want you to have it. And we have this whole jealousy that kind of riles up within us. And, and that's what drives us to work, he's saying. That's what pervades so much of work. We'll see in a little bit that work in and of itself isn't bad. But the problem of evil corrupts it and breaks it. We, we find ourselves defining our worth and who we are by how much income our work gives us. So if we, we live in a, in a suburb where everyone around us gets about $40,000 a year and we get fifty, we, we're pretty happy. We're above average. This is awesome. But if, if you live in a suburb where everyone's on $200,000 a year, like in some really rich area, and you're only on 100000 a year, then you feel like, man, I'm poor. This is awful. What's happening there? Well, we're driven by the jealousy of what we see around us, by the position of others. I heard an uh, interview with Bill Gates when he was much younger, uh, still when he was running Microsoft. Uh, it was very early on in his days. And the interviewer asked the question, Bill, what do you spend your days thinking about? You know what his answer was? The competition. What fills his mind? This man who made so much. He's worried about what the competition are doing, what their next step is. He wants to be ahead of the pack. His work is defined by the work of others. Work becomes a tool of self-service. And I think it becomes a tool of tall poppy removal. I was thinking about this whole tall poppy syndrome. Australians have it too. It's not just native to New Zealand. Um, we, we love taking anyone down who puts their head above the crowd. Uh, we just do it more verbally than Kiwis generally. We just say, you're an idiot. And we, we say bad things publicly, whereas Kiwis do it much more kind of tactfully and um, with kind of more precision, I think. Um, kind of like we, we go through a poppy field with a chainsaw. And it's like, yeah! And everyone's like, idiot. So, but I think we do it. Why do we, ta- why do we cut down the tall poppy? Why do we cut down the person that, that stands up above the crowd? If I'm honest, I'll tell you why I do it. It's because I don't want anyone to be higher than me. 
I'm like, oh, look at you standing up there pretending like you know it all. Oh, I'll cut you down a few notches. How many notches? Maybe just to my level <laughs> or a little bit below. Again, we're driven by jealousy of those around us. We want to be maybe just that little bit better. Have that sense where we can say, look, look at us. Work, though it was intended for good, we've turned into something used for evil, for self-service. Next, the teacher then turns to relationships. Another thing that is vitally important to life. And here we see the problem with relationships. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with his riches. So who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself from good? This too is futile and a miserable task. You see two things here. There's a reality that relationships don't deliver. We want relationships. We long for relationships. But as a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and that is, well, failure to deliver. The world we live in doesn't hold relational bliss, although we strive for it. People are lonely. Marriages are lonely. Family can be painful and awful. Relationships seem to be not delivering, whether they're robbed by death or relational dysfunction. Relationships, though they're good, that they don't deliver what we want them to. There's this sense here that as he writes, there's this real desire and yearning for relationships that work. And then you see here that without relationships, what's the point of sacrifice? What's the point of all the things we do in life without people to share them? And so you kind of have this picture here that relationships are disfigured and not the way they should be. And so life doesn't have its meaning. Now, how does evil affect relationships? Well, let me just play a scenario out. Hard-working student, works hard throughout university, goes well, puts in the hours, is happy to do the time because he wants to get a good position and, and, and a good job opportunity about it being a good career. He loves family, loves the idea of family, but has worked hard throughout university, uh, gets into his first job, and, and the job kind of goes well, though it's demanding, it takes lots of hours, and he wants to please the boss, so he gets in early and he stays back late because that's how you please your boss, and you work hard, and you work hard, and then you're 40. You don't really have any great long-term relationships because, well, you've sacrificed them to serving your position of career, serving your position of being better than those next to you, those around you, of being the number one. Evil gets in there and we don't care about relationships. Or you might have got married to that great guy. But... It wasn't enough and, and, and you wanted to get that career as well and, and have kids and really life became a checkbox to be able to tick off the different things, trophies on a cabinet, great family, the kind of the, the plastic kind of household, all looking the same with the newest stuff and the smeg appliances and every, you know, it looked good and your house is neat and tidy and you've got a career 
And your career's going well, it's bringing in money in the side, great quality nanny who does the washing and as well as looking after the kids. And all the other mums around you respect you because you've got such a great job and you're so smart and talented and, and your husband walks away from you. Why is that? Relationships don't deliver. But the self-centeredness of us as people ruin relationships. We become so focused on ourselves and, and, and what we need that they become emptied of their worth and they end up like train wrecks. How many people spend their life looking for the perfect companion? You know, someone comes along, they're dating, and they're like, yeah, this person's they're pretty good, but they've got, some, they've got a few issues there. Like, I don't know. They might smell a bit funny. Who knows? You know, they've got a freckle in a weird spot. Okay? And like, they're almost good, but I just, they're just not perfect. And so they, they break up that relationship and then they go on to another one. Like, oh yeah, I like relationships, but this person, they're good. You know, they're Christian. They love Jesus. They want to kind of lead people. They're in their Bible. They're encouraging you to grow. Um, they just don't like the same stuff as you. And you're like, oh, that could be a problem. We're not really compatible. So you break that off. And your whole life ends up just being a chain of not perfect people. I've got a newsflash for you. The very philosophy you're using to choose a partner will backfire because you're not perfect either. If you finally find the perfect person, they're going to look at you and go, ugh, <laughs> I can't believe they're not perfect <laughs> because we're not. And so, so maybe some people here who are in this chain of looking for the perfect partner who just go, oh, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Maybe you just need to go look in the mirror. I'm not perfect. What's happening there? <laughs> Self-centeredness is getting in the way of relationship. So relationship doesn't deliver. Evil wins in the end. Serving me matters more than serving others. Now, I'm not saying you should just marry anyone, right? Just, just to be clear, you know, someone comes up to you on the street and it's like, I'll marry you. You're like, whoa, Rowan said I've got to marry the first person that comes along. I am not saying that. Don't be stupid. Okay. And if you're married to someone, I'm not saying, you know, you should leave them. I'm not saying that either, right? No. The Bible gives us good guidelines for marriage. It's for life. It's with someone of the opposite sex. And and that marriage is to be serving of one another. But if the guy or girl's a Christian and you guys are are thinking through how to serve Jesus, great. Marriage won't deliver everything we want it to. We often rely on it too much. Relationships are broken. The writer says a little bit later that um, when there's one person, they can be overpowered. When there's two, they can stand together. And three, well, that's even stronger again. What's behind that? The world around us is trying to break up relationships. Evil has got in there as well. Whether it's someone else who's jealous, whether it's our own self-service. Evil plays its hand in relationships. The problem isn't relationships, you've got to be clear. It's the evil done within them. See, and that's actually the problem with wealth as well. The writer then switches to this view of wealth. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the one who consume them multiply. What then? Is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. So there's nothing wrong with money. It's not inherently evil. Um, 
But the love of money is the issue. Did you see that? Verse 10, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with its income. If, if wealth and money is your security, is what you live for, it will never deliver. And, and, and the desire to love it, to put it in that, that first position, to make it the most important thing, well, it's never going to satisfy. I'll show you a picture of a guy. Does anyone know who this guy is? Any hands? No, oh, come on. Anyone? Just put your hand up and go, he's a guy. <laughs> Someone was at church this morning. So this guy's name is Marcus Person. Do, do you know who he is now? So, yeah, oh, yeah, who is he? Who is he? He made Minecraft. Exactly right. This is the dude that came up with the game Minecraft. Like, and such an awesome like, game. Over 100 million users across the world. Imagine that. You create kind of a, a simulation world that's got 100 million people in it. He's kind of like the king of bigger nations than New Zealand and Australia put together, right? He's got all these people in his world. And this, this game's taken off like wildfire, like crazy. It's like a whole movement. My kids read books on how to do Minecraft stuff. They can tell me stuff. And I'm like, what's Minecraft? Like they, just, they just know it. It's just pervaded the world around us. Well, this time last year, in fact, two days earlier last year, um, he got sick of Minecraft, He's kind of like, I don't want to do this thing anymore. And, and so he sold it to Microsoft. Do you know how much he got for it? 2.5 billion US dollars. That's 3.8 billion New Zealand dollars. 2.5 billion dollars for this game he created. Microsoft thinks this is going to be awesome. Now, here's a guy who's like... He's got all the money the world could, you, you could imagine, right? I mean, it's more than winning lotto. Imagine someone rocked up to you when he's $2.5 billion for a game you made in high school. You'd be like, what? Like, anyway, so off he goes. This is what he does. Basically, he retires. He sells the, he sells the company, and then he starts up another one that he might do something with in the future. But then he's like, right, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to have fun in life. And so he buys a $70 million home, as you do. You're like, and you've got $2.5 billion, $70 million is small change. All right, so you reckon that'd be good. And then he hits the party scene. He's like, I just want to throw parties. Like, parties are fun. I spent all my time programming, and now I just want to relax a bit and live a little. And so he starts throwing parties at $180,000 a pop per night, every night. These massive parties, just spending extravagant amounts of money, going, this is life, this is living it up. This is a year ago this happened, right? That, 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 he, that, he, um, that he sold the company, and, and Microsoft comes in, and he's, he's rolling in it. Then... He starts tweeting interesting tweets. Let me show you some of them. Um, first one here. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And I've never felt more isolated. I haven't doctored this. This is, jump on Twitter. Not now, later. Check it out. Look at the next, look at the next one here. Um, found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. Look at the jealousy. See? Or the last one here. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Incredibly successful man by every human measure, isn't he? Incredibly wealthy. The world's at his fingertips, yet he is just not satisfied with money. The love of money doesn't do it for him. He's jealous of the guy who got the girl. Able to do anything he wants, yet feels totally isolated. 
And I want to say the same is actually true on the opposite end of the spectrum, on the low-income end of the spectrum. Um, Richard Easterlin is a professor of economics at the University of Southern California. He has the title of the eminent happiness scholar. He's, a, he's an economist that looks at how the economy affects people's happiness. Uh, there's a whole heap of, you can look him up and see the studies that he's done. He did one study um, really trying to look at the effect of people moving from being in poverty to being a working class or a middle class and, and what effect that would have basically on happiness. And so we looked at China because we see in China a great move through the Industrial Revolution now and, and the Chinese people have moved from being in a large poverty kind of class to now being a larger working class and a middle class that's happened there. So between 1990 and the year 2000, he studied um, the rise in the economy and mapped it to the rise of happiness and satisfaction in people. Now, what would you expect? You'd expect that people moving from poverty to a, to a, to a working class and being, having the resources would actually make them happy, right? That, that would seem to me that it would. But here's, let me quote for you. And it's on the screen. There is no evidence of an increase in life satisfaction of the magnitude that might have been expected to result from the fourfold improvement in the level of per capita consumption that's occurred. He's an academic. That's just what, how they write sentences. And that was from the abstract, so it's even like a shorter one. But do you see that? There is no evidence of an increase in life satisfaction anywhere near the magnitude that you might have expected from the fourfold improvement in the level of per capita consumption that's occurred. He's not saying that there's no rise in satisfaction. There, there is a little. Uh, as people move from poverty to actually having basic needs, it's like, oh, we can actually live. There's this sense in which there is um, added help, but... But then it doesn't go beyond that. You think it would significantly increase your life satisfaction now that you've got expendable cash there, but you don't. If you think you're going to get content by chasing wealth, you're dreaming. You're dreaming. It will not happen. It does not deliver. What more evidence do you want to hear than these two people, these studies, and looking at the Minecraft dude? <laughs> like, he's not happy. But remember, it's not the money in and of itself that's evil. It's just that our pursuit of it, thinking it will free us, it will give us satisfaction and life, that is incredibly foolish. That's what this guy is doing. He's thinking it's going to give him hope and meaning in life. It just, it just doesn't deliver. He ends up treating money as, as a god that he finds his security in. He, he worships it and thinks it will bring him everything he ever wanted, but it doesn't. And here's the thing. When you treat something as though it will give you all the happiness and security that you want and desire, and it doesn't, it's just an awful travesty. But not only that, when you reject the one that does give security and happiness, well, that's evil. That's wrong. We end up doing almost anything, compromising on so much to achieve wealth. I want to ask a question, though. At night, who do you think sleeps better? Bill Gates or the garbage collector? Who has a better sleep? Verse 12, the sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. We stay awake, worrying, what am I going to do with my $2.5 billion? I know, first world problems, right? 
What we have here in these chapters of Ecclesiastes is a catalogue of things in life that are important, that are good, but that are ruined by evil, by serving ourselves, by using them wrongly, and they don't deliver. There's nothing wrong with the things of of wealth and work and and relationships. They're good. In fact, verse 18 of chapter 5 says they're gifts from God. Have a look at this with me. Um, Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I've seen to be good. It's appropriate to eat and drink and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. God has also given riches and wealth to every man and has allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Now you're like, this is great. You know, these things are actually given as a gift. But there's a twist. This is a gift from God, verse 20. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. It's a little bit tricky to understand what he's actually saying here and why. He sounds like he's going, no, 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 it's all good now. Just run to it and enjoy it. And it's full. He's saying, no, no, no. If death is the end, then we actually have a time now to enjoy what, what we have in front of us. And we can enjoy them, but they're not going to deliver everything, but we can just enjoy them. They're gifts from God. And actually, one of the other gifts from God is he allows us to not think about the reality that while we're enjoying these things, that means nothing. He's like, I've looked, I've gone to the end of every area of money, of wealth, of relationships, of power, of of building things. I've seen it all. And death robs you from all of it. It robs it from its meaning. It's just going to get handed on to someone else. It's not going to satisfy you. But in a sense, there is a a sense in which it's it's kind of good. It's kind of a way you can enjoy it. And at least this happens. At least it takes your mind off the reality we're all going to die. That's wisdom under the sun. If you take God out of the picture in terms of an eternity or what happens after death, if if this life is all there is, he's like, well, at least the God who gives us everything helps us get a little bit caught up in it so we don't think about it. (laughs) Problem for us is we actually need to think about it. We need to think through the realities of life. We need to hear the news as it really is. But we get so caught up in these other things that we think will deliver that we don't consider the deeper question. We don't think about what really they will achieve for us in the end. What he's actually saying is this. Life sucks because evil is in the world. The only thing you can do really if... if Evil is the end and death is the end of that is to just enjoy life, but it'll be meaningless in the end. But he says it in such a way to drive you to despair. It's kind of this whole book is an odd way of kind of getting us to think through life. It's saying, no, you need to see the matter of the the heart of the matter here. You need to see what's actually going on. Because he answers the heart of the matter in chapter six, verse one. He says, here is a tragedy that I've observed under the sun and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. 
A man may have a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives, if he's not satisfied by good things and does not have, even have a proper burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Seriously, he says that. For he comes in futility and goes in darkness. And his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not experienced happiness, do not both go to the same place. Death robs life of its meaning. Death robs humanity of God's intended pleasure for us to enjoy life. Death is the one that sucks the marrow out of life. It means that relationships, they're kind of, they're broken because we die and there's, there's evil in them. There's evil in the world of the way we think about work and wealth. And there's a point at which I want to stand back and be angry at death. You know, and say, death sucks. Why is this the case? I want to watch the news and be like, evil sucks. I hate it. Get lost. But you and I aren't innocent in all this. See, death is a result of evil. We weren't created to die. Death came into the world as a result of evil. What was that evil? Disobeying the gift-giving God. Trying to run life without God in his proper place. So you think back to the, the, the first parents, Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, right? And they're there, and God has given this amazing world. He's given them food to eat, relationship with the creator of the universe, relationship with one another, and it was good. Just life is good for them. And then they come across this fruit that, on this tree that God said, but don't eat that one. It's not good for you. I made the world. I love you. Trust me. Don't eat that. But they look at it, and it looks good. And they're like, you know what? There's this talking snake there. You're like, I don't know why God made it a talking snake. Made it not be able to talk, it would have been better. But anyway, there's this snake there, and the snake says, no, God, you see, God just doesn't want you to be like him. Tall poppy syndrome. See it? Jealousy. God doesn't want you to be like him. And out of Adam and Eve's heart, he's like, I want to be like God, and this fruit thing looks good. I know he told us not to, and I know things are falling apart. (laughs) And things did fall apart. They go and they they think at this moment, I know better than God. Otherwise, why would they have done it? And they take the fruit and they eat it. They try and be equal with God. And there is evil out of of themselves. It's rebellion against God. Why why is that evil? (laughs) Because God is the rightful ruler. He is the one who is in control of all things. And if we walk up to him as his creation and we say, you know what? I think I should be in your seat. I think I should be able to control the world and make all the choices and determine what good and bad is. I want to just boot you. In fact, I'm just going to do it. It's just like walking up to a policeman and saying, you might have authority to tell me what to do, but I don't care about your authority. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to shoot you because I can. It's wrong. We can't do that. We're not in a position to be able to do that. Well, imagine what it is like doing that to the creator of the universe. A thousand years after this is written, a man walks the earth whose name is Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he says some pretty out there stuff about life and what matters. And he's got something big to claim about the problem of evil. This is what he says. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. All these good things that the teacher in Ecclesiastes lists have all been marred by evil, relationships, work, wealth. But here's the thing. The evil that's in the world, we've actually had some part to contribute to. Because it's us in these relationships that wants to serve ourselves. It's us that wants to take God out of his place and live with us as the king. Us ruling our own lives. We have kind of broken the world we live in. It's not some external force on us that pushes us to rebel against God. The summary of this passage is, (laughs) life with evil in it sucks. You and me, because we're evil, suck. Now, at this point, we could just stop and be like, whoa, that's pretty full on. You know? And we could just go, how do I deal with this problem? <laughs> and we could just put up a picture on the screen of like a little giraffe and be like, oh, isn't everyone happy now? Wait, everyone's going to be happy in a second. What's this? See? Yeah, that's what the news does. Death, murder, kind of all this stuff going on. Oh, happy giraffe. But I want us to think more deeply than that. If we are frustrated that death is in the world, that death takes the meaning out of life, we can get rid of the giraffe now, I've had enough. Nice. If we're frustrated that death is in the world and we're frustrated at the evil that exists and we stand back and look and go, you know what? I actually am a contributor to evil. Out of my heart, Out of my desires, I rebel against God and I treat others wrongly. We need a far better solution than butterflies and baby giraffes, don't we? Far better solution than to stick our heads in the sand and be like, that's all right, just enjoy what you can. Forget about the fact that life will come to an end and that's it. The writer of Ecclesiastes pushes us tonight to think and to see that the problem of evil is a problem with me. And it's a problem with you. It's putting yourself in the place of God, operating in the world against the manufacturer's instruction, saying to the God who gives you life, I don't want to treat you that way. I think I know what's best. Rejecting the life-giving God is rejecting life itself, and so our only future is death. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he kind of, he doesn't have a full answer to this problem. But he has a hint. And we'll see to the end of chapter 12. He's kind of letting us all sit in this throughout this time. But at the moment, he gives us a hint of the answer in in, um, chapter 5, verse 7. It's not on the screen. He says, therefore, fear God. What is that? 
There's some, some relationship between us and God, some way in which we need to think about not just being afraid of God, but recognizing that God is in control. He's the one who maintains the universe. He's the one which we need to come before, recognize he's the one that should be on the throne. But we live in a much clearer age where God has made himself more known. With Jesus on the scene, we see that God has come. See, with Jesus, we don't just live under the sun. We get to see the sun, S-O-N. We get to live for this sun and recognize he is God. What has he done for us? How does he change it? Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see how this really means I can get up in the morning. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Here's a summary of what Ecclesiastes is saying. Evil, our evil has so pervaded our world that it's broken and that it doesn't deliver. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Why are Christians so excited about Jesus? Because Jesus undoes what we have done. You know you haven't lived a perfect life. You know that if you were to come before God and he should say, why should I let you into my heaven? The right answer is you shouldn't. I'm guilty of, of, of taking your place, of, of ignoring you, wanting to live my life my way. I've, out of my own heart, these evil desires have come. Relationships I've hurt. Money I've used so self-centeredly. And work, I haven't tried to use it for the good of those around me, but seen it as a status symbol to give me what I need. And I've rejected you. I've used your world in a way that is against the, the way you've made it. I... I If I'm honest, I need to be found guilty and take what should be coming to me, the removal of everything good God gives me, which is life itself, death, separation from God's goodness, judgment forever. But Jesus steps on the scene and says, I made you and I love you. I know you you hate me. You live life ignoring me. Yet I will willingly die in your place. I will take the penalty that you deserve. I will face death on your behalf so that you don't have to face the consequences of your own evil actions and mine. Jesus dies in your place 
so that we can be forgiven. And then he just lavishes us. It's not like, oh, I'll just do something a little bit to, to clean it up. He's like, I'll give you everything I have. <laughs> you want wealth? Don't seek it in this world. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He tells us later on in the letter that you will inherit the earth. You will be called a co-heir with Christ, ruling eternity. If you trust in Jesus, he offers you everything. That is life. Forgiveness. Like, what else could we want? This gift of God, this grace that has saved us. We just need to trust what Jesus has done. Put our life in his hands. The problem of evil is solved when Jesus took the consequences of evil for you and for me. You look back over the way we use relationships, the way we use work, the way we use money. And you compare it to Jesus. He reverses every one of them. He's the ultimate relationship keeper. He died. Well, we wanted nothing to do with him. Yet he laid down his life for us. That is the very definition of love, isn't it? Not because of something it would give him, but because he loved us. Just because he loved us. Because he loved you. He always did what was right. He's the ultimate right doer. He never did wrong. He was the ultimate wealth provider. He didn't hoard for himself, but laid down his life to offer you eternity. Incomparable riches. Life that does not end. Friends, Ecclesiastes wants to leave you and me in our darkness and depression. Wants to work like the news, but without the giraffe. Well, the giraffe it provides is like, you can enjoy it a bit, but then you die. What a joy it is to live this side of what Ecclesiastes leaves a big gaping hole for. See, it leaves a hole for us to want Jesus, to need him, to come running to him and say, thank you for providing the solution to life. See, in Jesus, if we trust him, as we trust what he's done for us, we can live in the world where, well, it doesn't matter if we've got the best job or not, because my identity is tied up in what Jesus has done for me. When I worry about my security, how, how more secure than you, can you be? Then death will not affect you for eternity. You will die, but it will be but a second. If you trust in Jesus, for your sins have been paid for and life forever has been offered. What can anyone take? Sure, it might hurt for a while, yes. But in Jesus, forgiveness is offered. My question tonight is this. Have you come to Jesus? You might have been calling yourself a Christian for 20 years. Really, you've just been flirting with the toys of the world, climbing the insurance policy view of Jesus, where, oh, I want your salvation, but you know what? I'm just going to live like everyone else. Will you tonight slow down and recognize with me how evil we are, how twisted I naturally am to want to run my life without God, want to make decisions that put me at the center rather than him? See, when you recognize the depth of our need and the evil within us, then you see how amazing the love that Jesus has shown us is. Will you come and run to Jesus to say, I put my life in your hands. You are the greatest gift I could have. If you're here tonight 
checking out Jesus, trying to work out if this is, this is something you, you want to follow, if this thing's real. If, then I want to say, don't put your head in the sand about life. Listen to the, the world that kind of maker of Minecraft. Wealth will not satisfy. Relationships will not satisfy. You will never be perfect. And the claim of history, the claim of Jesus is you will come before your maker. I'm not trying to put the fear factor into people to say, oh, I've got to come and, and trust Jesus, otherwise I'm going to go to hell. I'm not trying to make that up so that it's, it's kind of like, oh, I must run to him. If it's true, then it's not trying to scare people. It's saying this is the reality. Come to Jesus. At least look at him seriously. Check him out. See what he has done. And see how life makes so much more sense. When death is not the end. Tonight, I want you just to I want to pray in a second. Why don't we just ask our God to help us recognize how really we are broken and help bring us to trust in Jesus for what He's done for us and live life with great joy. Let's pray together. Father God, tonight we've seen in your word just how the things that are important in life are so broken by us. By the way we live, they do not deliver. We, we, we seek too much in them and we think life is about us. We remove you from your place on, on, on the throne of being God, of ruling our lives. And we are sorry. We ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would show us acutely where we've turned our back against you, where we might be rebelling against you right now. You give us a picture of the future that we have without Jesus. The judgment that should be ours. And Father, we ask that then you would remind us of the incomparable joy of knowing that our rebellion has been forgiven, that the price has been paid that we can stand before you right now if we trust in Jesus, saying we don't deserve eternal life, but Jesus has paid the price. It is finished. Father, fix our eyes on your Son, that we might see clearly what we've been offered and see the incomparable nature of what that is like compared to the world around us. And that we might then live seeking value in work and life not because those things give us meaning in them of themselves, but because you've freed us to use them as you desire. You've freed us to not have to worry about doing everything perfectly. You've freed us to have life. Father, we pray tonight that you would give us great joy. For those of us, Lord, that haven't yet come to Jesus, we ask that you would be able to show us, show them who you are, the hope that is found in Jesus and that they too might experience the life that you have offered us. Pray this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen.